Well, last week uh, we discussed a little bit about the activities of Jesus in the 40 days that he was on earth after his resurrection and before his ascension. And this morning I'm going to focus eventually on the ascension. But first I want to go back to the resurrection a little bit because there's some things I think we really need to clearly understand about the resurrection in particular, the transformation that took place between Jesus' earthly body and his resurrected body, the transformation that took place there because there is significance to what took place in his life as to what will take place in ours someday. So I want us to look back, and and the title of my message is simply, Jesus Didn't Just Disappear. He did not just disappear. I think we, we can have some confusion, even some of the the things we read in the Bible, you know, we cannot say, for example, how many of you know Jesus just appeared in a room with the disciples with the door locked? What does that mean? Does it mean he walked through the walls? doesn't say that. Maybe he just opened the door like he opened the prison gates when Paul was imprisoned. Who knows? We, don't, we make these assumptions and we sometimes take them maybe a little too far. I think there's significance to understand the, the transformed body that Jesus had after the resurrection and that he has yet today in heaven. He's got a body, physical body, but it's different than it was here on earth. When we think about the resurrection, it wasn't just an example of Jesus coming back to life. Now, when we think of the the stories in the Bible, the the stories were, well, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. One of the more, more common ones, Lazarus, come forth. He'd been dead three or four days, and he stinketh by now, but he came forth out of the tomb. He was raised from the dead. And we know that he raised a young girl who all, they all thought, he, well, she was dead. And, and when he rose her from the dead, he just took a few people into the room because they were all laughing at him. Jesus says, he's, she's just sleeping. And they're going, no, she's not just sleeping. We know a dead body when we see one. Raised her from the dead. He came across the funeral procession, and he says he had compassion on the, the mother of this boy that had died. And he raised him from the dead. Jesus being raised from the dead wasn't like any of those. He didn't just come back the way he was when he went into the tomb. Every single one of those people that he raised from the dead they came back to life in the same body that they had before they died. And their bodies would have continued to age. And their bodies would have continued to experience probably sickness and disease. And they eventually, guess what? Died again. It wasn't permanent. That's not the kind of body Jesus had when he was raised from the dead. It changed. If it hadn't changed, his body would have been similar to what we are experiencing in our bodies today, getting older. Some of you can't relate yet, but it will happen should he tarry. And eventually we will probably all experience sickness and disease. And we can pray and God can miraculously heal us, but unless he comes back first, guess what? Nobody's healing that you're going to get in this earth is going to be complete and everlasting because we're all going to die unless he comes back first, right? But Jesus didn't get raised from the dead with that kind of body. And the thing that's so encouraging for us, should be so encouraging for us, is we have 
scriptures that tell us Jesus was raised as the first fruits. He was the first fruits of that kind of resurrection. He was the first fruits of that kind of new body. Matter of fact, a couple of scriptures, the first ones in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And boy, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter to spend some time studying. And it will take a little study as you read through it. But in verse 20, it starts and says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, those who are already dead. He's the first fruit. He's the evidence of what's going to come for everything else eventually. He's the first fruits. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Adam sinned. Jesus died for our sins. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. And after that, those who are at Christ, who are Christ at his second coming. When he comes back, everybody that's died as a believer is going to get a new body, a resurrection body, a glorified body, if you would. And if any of us happen to still be alive when he comes back and we don't have to die and go to the grave, we're going to get a new body just like that. It's going to be transformed. But none of that's going to take place until he comes back. You know, the victory over death and sin has already been won. But death still occurs, right? But when he comes back, death, it's done. The Bible says it's the last enemy destroyed completely. He kills it. There will be no more death ever. Ever. Amazing when you think about these things. And his resurrection is an example of the first fruits, the new body that he got, that eternal body that he got. There's one coming for us someday. And again, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, a little further in that chapter, starting at verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in a perishable body. And if you read this before, it maybe you just read it and you go, okay, whatever all that is. But think about it. Think about the comparisons that are being made. And think about this, this perishable body. This body that I got and you've got, and I don't care how much you work out, unless he comes back, you're going to die. It's just a matter of fact. It's perishable. But guess what? Look at the comparisons he makes as he goes through this scripture. Paul tells us it's sown in a perishable body, but it's raised as an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. Oh, my goodness. Glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Now, when you read those words, spiritual body, It's easy to get confused about what it's talking about. It doesn't mean we're some little spiritual thing floating around like an orb of light. No. That word spiritual there never means immaterial. Never. In the Greek, the word is pneumatiko. Pneumatiko. And what that word means is, well, first of all, it never means non-physical. Never. It's never used. The meaning of it, none of the meanings. When you look in the lexicon, you can go through all the different meanings. Never means non-physical. What it refers to is, I'll read what I I think I put up there. Yeah. But rather it means consistent with the character or being filled with 
and activity or governed by the Holy Spirit. We are going to get a body, an imperishable body, a body of power, a glory, a spiritual body, a spiritual body that will be totally controlled by, activated by, governed by the Holy Spirit. I won't have to worry about sinning anymore. It will be impossible. There's going to be no sin in heaven. Amen? Won't that be nice? I don't have to deal with that garbage anymore. It's gone. No pain. No suffering. Gone. And this is the kind of body that was given to Jesus when he was raised from the dead. This imperishable body. And one of the things that affirms is really, you remember when when Jesus or God created man in the garden, Adam and Eve? Remember what he said when he finished creating Adam and Eve? What did he say? This is very good. Everything else he said he saw and it was good. It saw and it was good. And oh my goodness, creation's good. But when it came to you and me, mankind, humans in body form, he said, this is very good. Guess what? That was not a perishable body. That was a body of imperishableness. Is that a word? It was a body of power and of glory. It was a spiritual body. It was led by the Holy Spirit. Except God did give them a free will. But if they had not sinned, they'd have lived forever. And it confirms that when God said this is very good, it was very good. And that's the kind of body that's waiting for each one of us. That's the kind of body, the resurrected body of Jesus. When we look at the resurrection, before we get to the the ascension, there's a few scriptures I'm going to read to you. I don't think I put all these on the screen. But the resurrection ensures our regeneration or our new birth, that born-again experience. In 1 John 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We can have a certainty of our born-again experience through the resurrection. Our justification has been assured. The resurrection was like God's stamp of approval, his declaration that what Jesus had accomplished through the work of redemption was good enough. Nothing else could have done it, and it was perfect. In Romans 4.25, it says, He who was delivered over because of our sin, our transgressions, in other words, Jesus was delivered over for them, it goes on and says, He was raised because of our justification. Because of our justification. And that doesn't mean because we were justified, He got to be raised. It means because He was acceptable sacrifice. He was raised from the dead. God's stamp of approval. Our born-again experience. Our justification. And lastly, we will receive these perfect resurrection bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 that I read earlier. Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits. Evidence. It's like a promise from God. Here it is. Jesus, 
what happened to Jesus. You know what? We've been identified with Christ, right? When he died, we died. When he was raised, we were raised. We identify with his death, resurrection, and we can also identify with his ascension. When we look at the plan of redemption, there was a progression that took place. And each step was important. The first step was the incarnation. God, Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, taking on human form, coming to earth as a baby. That thought still should amaze us. He left the glory of heaven, eternity with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, intimacy, fellowship, continually, forever and ever and ever and ever. And he, he chose to leave it, come to earth. The incarnation, first step. And then his death and his resurrection. He willingly went to the cross because of the plan of redemption that was established before the foundations of the world. Because he loved us so much, because the Father loved us so much, he offered up his Son, Jesus, in obedience to the Father, and love for the Father, and love for you and me, went through that horrible, horrible death that we talked about a few weeks ago. Natural part of the, re- the progression of our redemption. And third, his ascension. And it's really interesting to me, when you go through the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, John, don't even mention it. Don't even mention it. I mean, can you imagine being one of the disciples and you're going to write down what took place in the life of Christ? And you got to be standing on that mountaintop near Bethany and Jesus is talking to you and all of a sudden, right up to heaven. And now I'm going to write about all the cool things about Jesus and I leave that one out. Blows my mind. Thankfully, Luke chose to write about it. So the others must have talked about it because Luke said, he tells us, he's going to write down all the things that happened. So we have a perfect account of all those things. So we're going to look at the ascension of Jesus. And I'm going to ask you to just, you know, I get in trouble with this, so don't get carried away, but I want you to use your imagination a little bit. We're going to form our imagination around Scripture, but there are certain things we just don't know. So I'm going to stretch my imagination a little bit, and I hope it helps us grab hold of the significance of the Scriptures a little bit more. The ascension. Can you imagine the reunion that took place in heaven? Can you imagine that? I mean, wait a second here. God, the Father, the God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit have been together for eternity past, except for those approximately 33 years where Jesus came to earth, laid aside most of his glory, willingly set aside most of his divine attributes, separated from the Father in that physical sense geographically, And then, before he's able to go back, he has to go through this horrible, torturous death. And then while hanging on the cross, he had to experience the fullness of the Father's cup of wrath. But now, I mean, those 40 days, if I'd have been Jesus, I'd have just been kidding. Now, Dad, can I come now? I mean, it's all done. Can I come? 
Obviously, it wasn't done. We talked about what took place for those 40 days. But I can't help but imagine we're created in the image of God. We're created in the image of his son. I cannot imagine them both not being filled with anticipation. I can't imagine it. And we don't know exactly what it looked like. But let, let me read from Daniel. This is a prophecy, Daniel 7. Listen to this in light of what we know took place. Daniel's prophesying, and he says, I kept looking into the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion or power and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not ever pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not ever be destroyed. Can you imagine the scene in heaven? As Jesus approaches the gates, we're pretty sure there's gates. I don't know if there's an angel standing guard at the gate or not. I kind of think so. But can you imagine when Jesus is coming? He's ascending to heaven. We see in Revelation 19, 13, that it says his robes have been dipped in blood. We know from Scripture that the that the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side are still there. Even in that resurrection body, God the Father has decided to keep that evidence in his son's new body. I believe it's a continual reminder to the angels and to us and to everyone what Jesus did. And he's ascended to heaven. And who is this king of glory? He's the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your everlasting doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. I want to read Psalms 24. You can almost imagine, again, my imagination isn't scripturally inerrant. But I'm almost reminded of the words that we heard in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus cried out in agony, Abba, Father! Only that time it's in agony and the horror that he was experiencing. This time I, can, I imagine the same words, Abba, Father, I'm back. I'm back. I fulfilled everything you called me to do, and I'm back. And in my imagination, I hear the Father responding with something like this. Behold, the Lamb slain from the creation of the world, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And if it's possible, I think we saw an embrace in heaven that we'll never have ever seen before. I can't imagine what was going through the father's heart who had had to turn away from his son and not even look upon him as he became a curse on our behalf, as he became sin on our behalf. And as Jesus had cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? And now he's back in heaven. 
I bet the angels didn't know what to do other than holler, holy, holy, holy. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matter of fact, they're still singing it now. 2,000 years later, and they're going to be singing it when we get there. And they're going to look upon the Lamb of God, the Lamb as if he was slain, the wounds still present to remind us of what he did for us. Okay, I'll quit imagining. But he has returned to the Father with his mission fully accomplished on earth. He's glorified the Father. He's now ascended to the Father. And the Father in turn glorifies the Son. It's an answer to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Starting at verse 4, he said, I glorified you on earth, Father. Everything I did, everything I said, everything, every action was to bring glory to you, Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you had given to me to do. I did it all. And then in verse 5, he asked this in his prayer. Now glorify thou me together with yourself. Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world even was. I don't know that we can comprehend or understand what it was or what it means for Jesus to have set aside his glory to take on flesh and walk on this earth. You know, we get a glimpse of it in what we call a transfiguration. Remember that? John and James and Peter are with Jesus. When they take a nap again, they did to do that a lot, it seems. And then they look, and there's Jesus, but he's not alone. Who's with him? Moses and Elijah. And you know what it says about Jesus? His face was shining like the sun, and his garments were white like light. I think that was just a glimpse, a partial glimpse of the fullness of his glory that he had before he ever came to earth and that he has now. This glimpse of his glory and all that that entails. So we're going to read all the scriptures in the whole Bible that talk about his ascension. We got time, right? Well, there's not many. Luke, chapter 24, there's two verses. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. Now, Bethany is one of those towns that you maybe remember in Scripture. It's not very far from Jerusalem. Basically, if you could picture in your mind geographically, you go out of Jerusalem about a mile, and you crest at the top of the hill, or they call it a mountain. And just as you start to go down the other side, there's this village of Bethany. And Jesus stopped there a few times. He had some really good friends that lived there, right? Mary, Martha, Lazarus. It says, he led them as far as Bethany. And then just picture the scene. He lifts up his hands to bless them. And it says, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and he was carried up into heaven. As I studied this this week, I I thought of that event in my mind before. It was like a cloud just covered him up and then we couldn't see him anymore. 
But when you study the words in this, ver- in this and in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it's literally like the cloud came and he rode away on the top of the cloud. It lifted him up and carried him. And that's the other scripture, Acts 1, starting in verse 9. Here it's th- three verses. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go up into heaven. I can't imagine why they didn't write about it in Matthew, Mark, and John. Can you imagine? And you know what it says the disciples' response was? It's so different this time. He's gone. He didn't just disappear. He's on a journey. But he is gone. And we know how the disciples responded when Jesus was gone. Locked doors, fear, scared for their very lives. This time it's different. It tells us they went away with joy, praising God continually, filled with hope, and focused on the mission. They didn't get it all yet, quite, but they understood enough. So as we look at these texts, just want to go through a few things that we can observe in these texts. First of all, and it's pretty obvious, it marked the end of Christ's ministry on earth, geographically. He was no longer here. You know, on earth, when he was on earth for those 33 years, his his ministry was really limited. He could only minister where he was. That ministry ended on that day, and really the church's ministry was to begin. What had taken place from the manger in Bethlehem came to an end here at Bethany. And again, I want to just remind us that he just didn't disappear. I mean, if you think about that, you say, God, Mike, that's really a big deal. <laughs> so what? He didn't just disappear. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. When, his, when he was resurrected, as I said, I think last week, what if he had never been seen again? There would have been no proof. There would have been no evidence. Was he really God? Was he really divine? Did he really fulfill the prophecies? Same thing is true. If he had just disappeared, but they saw him leave on a journey, and I think that's important, he was taken up on a journey, and he was taken on this journey to a destination. I don't know how far that cloud had to take him. I don't know how long it took. But it was a trip. It was a trip. (laughs) Even for Jesus, it was a trip. And it had a beginning by Bethany, and it had an end in heaven at the throne of God. And that's where he is today. He's in heaven, near the throne of God. I usually say seated at the right hand of the Father, but he doesn't stay seated all the time. We know he stood up when Stephen was getting stoned. 
We see in Revelation, it sounds like he's just put his hands in his pocket, if his pocket, if he has pockets, and he's taking a stroll through the candlesticks, right? So he's not just sitting there doing nothing, and we'll talk about that in just a second. His ascension also marked the success of his life. It reaffirmed once again that his birth, the miracles, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, all of the appearances proved that he was divine. He was God, even as he was man. And it also fulfilled all of the messianic scriptures from the Old Testament that needed to be filled. Everything was accomplished perfectly. And his ascension brings it to a close. And as I already mentioned, as we imagined, the ascension also marks the time when Jesus got to experience the return of his divine glory. And the scripture talks about that quite a bit. Jesus prayed for it. Father, I've glorified you here on earth. God, I can hardly wait. Please glorify me with that that I had before. I don't pretend to understand what it was, but I think it must have been pretty important and significant for Jesus to be praying for it to be restored. And then to know, to remind ourselves, we are identified with Christ. We are going to receive a glorified body. I cannot believe that the glory that will be on us is going to be the same as his, but it's going to be really good, really good. There was no limits on him anymore. And then this, that we can take great, great hope in, in John chapter 14, verse 2. When he ascended to heaven, he doesn't just sit there twiddling his thumbs. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to do something. One of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to go and prepare a place. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. In John 14, verse 2, it says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Some translations say mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that word at the end of the verse where it says, I will come again and receive you into myself, receive you to myself, that word there receives, I mean, I, I'm going to come and I'm going to just take you alongside. I'm going to take you alongside. And when I return, you will also receive everything that I am the first fruits of. You're going to receive that glorified body. You're going to receive that imperishable body, that body of power, the body of glory and honor. It's all yours. It's coming. So we have that certain hope. The ascension was also proof or evidence because of all the fulfilled prophecy. And we could read lots of them. Just want to share a couple, one in Psalms and one in Hebrews. Psalms 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies the footstool. And then in Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, When he had made purification of sins, when he had made the payment for our sins, after he had died and been raised from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
And we've talked about the right hand and the significance of that right hand of God. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it is a position of power and authority. And in Jesus' case, it was a position of power and authority over the whole universe. It's given him dominion over everything. Power and authority over everything. And what's really cool is it's an authority that we share in part. You know, sometimes I say all the, maybe you've said, you know, the authority that Jesus had, I've given it all to you. I'm not sure that that's quite accurate. I don't know that I have dominion over the universe. But he's given us authority to fulfill the Great Commission. And he makes clear some of the things that we have an authority and a power to do as he's commissioned us. And also he, his ascension gave him the authority to do something that was absolutely necessary for the church. He gave him the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself had said earlier, it's better that I die and go to the Father than it is if I stay with you because when I go to the Father, I'm going to send the one who has been promised, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, you will receive power. Power to be my witnesses everywhere on this planet. And the ascension also was the beginning of a new type of ministry. He took on a new work, and we can look in Hebrews. I'm not going to go to all these scriptures, but in Hebrews you know, 8, 9, 10, we see he's, he's our high priest. When he says, there's no one that gets to the Father except through me. I'm your high priest. There is no other priest that you need to go through. It's just me. And because of the, I am your high priest, you have access directly to the Father. And also, he began his ministry as the mediator of the new covenant for us. And he began in earnest the ministry of intercession on our behalf. He intercedes for us. And again, that sounds so, yeah, okay. Think about that. Any accusation that the enemy would bring, we have Jesus interceding for us. The enemy comes with those thoughts and those accusations that you're not good enough, accusations of guilt and shame, condemnation, all these accusations. And Jesus is our advocate saying, Lord, right here, I took care of all that. Father, I took care of all that. The enemy has no legal grounds. Lest we open that door. And lastly, and your list could probably go on a lot longer than mine, but it established the pattern for Christ's return. You might seem foolish to the world, but we can stand and look in the sky, anticipating with confidence that he's coming back just like he went. I don't know if we need to all move to Bethany or not. Pretty sure we don't. But he's coming back. And he's coming back for us, his church, his bride. He's coming back to receive us unto himself. And if we have died and been put in a grave before he comes back, when he comes back, we're going to get a new body. 
And if you and I happen to be those still on this earth when he comes back, instantly we will be changed and we'll be taken up to meet him in the sky. How cool does that sound? It's like we read that stuff and we don't even think about it. Yeah, okay, cool, he's coming back. No, no, come think about it for a second. Whatever we are, when our spirit goes to be with him instantly when we die, when he comes back, we come back with him and we get a new body. Cool. <laughs> and the graves are going to be emptied. And, and if you're on earth, all of a sudden it's, whoa. Talk about a rush. Whatever was there is gone. And now I have this perfect, imperishable body. Meditate on these things when you read the scripture. It's a really big deal. Acts 1 verse 11 said, and I read this, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky? He will come just the same way. So right now, Jesus is currently reigning in heaven. And it's the beginning of the time where the church, us, is supposed to take up the task that he's given us. Through the ministry and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we are supposed to be those sharing the good news of the gospel. You know, it's interesting. I want you to just think about this for a second. The disciples. You can only imagine everything they went through, that emotional roller coaster. As they walk up the hill, about a mile outside of Jerusalem, near Bethany, and all of a sudden he just blesses them and leaves to heaven. These New Testament writers, these guys that wrote the New Testament, they were totally, 100% thoroughly convinced that Jesus was at the right hand of the Father. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they were in union with the ascended Jesus. And by the commission that he gave them, and through that ascended power and authority that he has, they were left behind to do his work. They were totally convinced. Totally convinced. And when they walked away that day, it says they left with joy and were continually praising God, and they were filled with hope, and they were focused on the mission. We should be no less convinced than they were. We have their evidence. We have the eyewitness accounts. We have all this information. We have the understanding. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, just like they had the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost. We have all of this. We should be filled with joy, continually praising God and giving thanks, filled with hope and focused on me. No. The mission. Not self, not circumstances, not persecution, not suffering, none of those things. The mission. And we so easily forget all that. When we look at the mission, we're to go and make disciples. Everywhere we go. We should be able to live boldly with confidence. And we should be intentional, strategic. You know, intentionality is a, a 
great word these days in all kinds of training and marketing and all that. It should be more important for us as Christians, strategic, intentional thinkers about what? How can we spread the gospel? Not just the church as this body, we should be, absolutely, but you and me. What can you do tomorrow? What can you do today? What can you do this afternoon? What kind of opportunities to present themselves? What kind of things happen every day that you're not prepared for when they happen? Because they happen over and over and over. Get prepared. Be intentional. What are you going to do the next time you ask someone how they are? And you say, oh, geez. You don't even want to know. No, I do want to know. I think I can share some hope for you. Got some hope to share with you. Really? That'd blow them away, wouldn't it? Be attentional. Be strategic. You know, most of the things that happen during the day don't surprise us because we're such creatures of habit and ritual. Be prepared. So when those things that are happening every day happen, you act differently. I have no hope. This happened. I am so, I'm just scared. Really? Really? What are you gonna, how are you going to respond? What an opportunity. It's like they just opened the door. And we just close it. Say, oh, I hope you get better. No, we have the answer. We have the hope in Christ. And those of us that are suffering, and most all of us are in one area or another, you know what? We need to take heart. Jesus understands and knows what we're going through. He went through it all. It says he was tempted in every way we'll ever be tempted. And look what he suffered and endured. And he's the one interceding for you. He gets it. It's okay that we're suffering. It's okay. Matter of fact, it's guaranteed in Scripture. We're going to suffer. And we need to keep hope. You know, it, it, again, it just sounds like words that we throw around. But seriously, measure 80 years in terms of eternity once. What we have here in this life, even if you happen to be one of those that lived to 110, the pinpoint on the map of eternity still isn't very big. We should have hope because we truly are just sojourners here on this earth. We are just here for a short time to bring glory and honor to him, to carry out the mission. Our hope isn't in this world, and it isn't in this life. And we get so off focus because we somehow believe that this is the best there's ever going to be. And when we're suffering, all we can think about is getting better. And that's good. I get that. But our hope is in eternity. Our hope is in the future that we have been guaranteed and the future that awaits us. We have a hope that Jesus is coming back. We have the certain hope that we're going to spend eternity with him forever in heaven. Except for that short little, you know, thousand years thing when we'll come back and rule with him. There is so much to be hopeful for. And when you think about it, all injustice all suffering, all sickness, all disease, all of that, gone. Forever. And we will be with him forever. So when you think of the ascension, 
I hope you think of it in greater terms than just those five verses. There is so much that it accomplished. It's such an integral part of the whole redemption process. It was really the culmination of the redemption. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you and praise you that we have the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in each one of us, God, that we have the, should have, the hope, the joy, and the desire and the motivation to carry out the mission. Lord, we pray, Father, that we would see things through your eyes, that we would see in the Spirit, not just with our natural eyes. God, I pray that you would help us, Father, that that we would be more intentional, that we would be more prepared. God, your word says that we're to be ready in season and out of season. We're to be ready all the time to share with those who have no hope. God, I pray that you give each one of us uh, a, a keener eye and a keener ear to your, to your voice, that we would be prepared for those opportunities that come our way every day to just be a light, to be salt, to be a witness for you. Lord, and I pray that as we do go our different directions today, that you would continue to watch over us, keep us safe. God, that we would be ever mindful that we are just travelers, sojourners here on this earth for a short time. God, help us to make the most of it for your glory. But keep our eye on the hope, keep our eye on the prize of spending eternity with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.